If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. What can unearthing historical burial sites tell us about life and death in the Roman, Viking and Anglo-Saxon eras? In her new book, Buried, Professor Alice Roberts explores just that – Following on from her last book, Ancestors, it uncovers how cutting-edge developments in archaeology and genetic science can broaden our understanding of the period from the 1st to the 10th centuries AD in Britain. Putting the questions to Alice was Emily Briffitt. Hello to you, Alice. It's really lovely to be chatting to you today. Oh, thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Today we're going to be talking about your new book, Buried. For context, can you describe what period you're talking about in your book? Yeah, I'm talking about the first millennium of the Common Era. So the Common Era is um, is also described as AD, but CE is a bit more, I suppose, global. But it is just Britain that I'm looking at. So I'm, I'm looking at the, the Roman period of Britain, the early medieval period. So there's Anglo-Saxon burials in there and some Vikings and some very early churchyards or at least cemeteries in, in Wales as well. So it's it's an alternative history of that millennium because it's not really history at all uh, in that history is the written word. And this is about archaeology. So uh, in particular about burial archaeology, what we can learn from the graves of our ancestors. Why did you choose to consider this millennium as a whole? Well, if I'm completely honest about it, this is the second book in what's turned into a trilogy. So my first book, Ancestors, dealt with British prehistory 
through the lens of burial archaeology. So looking at Paleolithic burials, uh, Neolithic burials, where we have farming coming into Britain, through to the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. And I was intending originally to then continue that into the historical period and pretty much get up to the present day. And it turned out that by the end, by the time I'd reached the Iron Age, I'd written about 120,000 words. So I thought I'd better stop there. So then I was going to have a historical book which dealt with the historical period from the Romans to the present day. But I did it again. And the, the reason it's happened again is that there are so many good stories in burial archaeology. So I kind of had to stop. And a thousand years seemed like a good wedge of time to deal with. And I'm currently writing the third book in the trilogy, which picks up the story in the Norman period. Sounds like a good way to be breaking it down. As you said, you considered graves and why they're so interesting in your last book, Ancestors. What changes with this millennium? What sort of differences do we start to see? There's an annoying thing that happens, which is which is that people start writing about stuff. So um, I, <laughs> I described this at the, at the very beginning of the book as a blessing and a curse, because it's wonderful that we have history. We have written history. We, we start to hear the names of places, the names of people. We, you know, we learn stories. We learn about perspectives on Britain from other parts of the world. Um, you know, we we learn that the people who live in Dorset are the Duratrigas. Um, the people who live in Kent are the Cantiarchy. Those names haven't changed. We're still basically using the same same names for those ancient kingdoms. We hear about people like like Boudicca and Togidubna. So you've you've got names, and then what happens is the history just takes over, and we look at the history, and then perhaps we just look at the archaeology as a kind of illustration of the history. And that's absolutely not what we should be doing. So I wanted to forefront the archaeology. The history clamours really loudly. And I found this while I was writing it as well, that it just wants to be in there. I mean, the venerable weed is practically knocking down my door, trying to get back in. (laughs) And I'm like, no, venerable weed, you stay out there. We're dealing with the burial archaeology first. So it's a fascinating period to be writing about, especially um, writing that book, having written the, the prehistoric ancestors book, which, which you know, you don't have any history clamouring to get in at that point. There's a little bit of, you know, the occasional occasional Greek and Roman coming along and saying various things about Britain. But essentially, the archaeology is, is your source of information about past people in Britain. I, I enjoyed that, keeping the history at arm's length and then actually letting it back in and letting it inform then what we had already interpreted from from the archaeology. There were some fantastic oh, revelations for me. I mean, this is what I enjoy about writing books is that, you know, I start off with ideas about what I want to write about. And it's a very personal journey through the first millennium, this book, because it's it's stories that come from my own research, from from digs that I've worked on, from sites that I found particularly interesting. But then you've then you kind of start to contextualize it and you start to broaden out and, and and read the historical text and i must say i'm you know i'm not a historian i'm a i'm a biological anthropologist i start to bring that in and there's just these extraordinary jaw dropping moments for me i i was writing about the the kind of the feasting rituals that go along with with Roman burials and the way that they had these feasts um, on the funeral day itself, but then at set days after the the funeral has happened, the um, the Canaan of Endialis on the ninth day, uh, and then there are ones throughout the year as well. So there are there are days that are associated with the the death day of that particular person, but then there are days which recur in the in the Roman calendar as well. 
And then I was talking to a Russian friend of mine. He said, "Oh well, we still do this. We we go to the we go to the graves on on um, Parents' Day, and we take food and we take vodka and we have to we have to drink vodka. We have to eat food at the graveside. And then I go back to looking at the Roman literature, and there in the Roman literature is this particular day of the dead, Parentalia. And suddenly you've got this incredible connection between, you know, pagan pre-Christian Roman customs." and what people are still doing in Russia today in the Russian Orthodox Church. So the church obviously just picked up what people were already getting up to. They have they have a real issue actually with these <laughs> with these feast days because when you when you look at kind of um, what the church is saying about them today they, they kind of tolerate them and they say but there, there mustn't be any merriment. Please don't get too merry at the graveside. I think this millennium feels quite familiar in the sense that it's the Vikings, it's the Romans, it's the Anglo-Saxons, all of which, as you've said, we have historical sources on. How do you deal with the preconceptions of the past that come with that? My approach to it is to, is to, is to try to approach the evidence with, with no preconceptions. It actually is impossible if you're completely honest with yourself. You can't be entirely objective but I think trying to strip away as much of that subjectivity as possible. So, I mean, that that really is part of trying to push the history to one side and just say, right, just, let's just forget about that and let's, let's look at the evidence. And I suppose it's quite a forensic approach to the past where you are looking at that that evidence and and what that evidence says to you about what happened at a particular time. And then you can start to bring in the history. And And, and interestingly, I think rather than using archaeology as a, as an illustration for the history, using it as a, as a kind of test. So to say, you know, rather than just to accept what the historians are telling us or various writers are telling us to say, well, actually, does this archaeology seem to correlate with what they're saying? Or actually, is it telling us something completely different? Very often, of course, archaeology is giving us, is giving us a different perspective. I mean, it, it does naturally give us a different perspective because history is often about elites uh, especially, you know, early history is there's only a very small proportion of the of the population that is even literate, and so it's necessarily a story about elites, and it, it tends to focus on high politics, and and then what archaeology does, of course, is is show us more ordinary lives as well, and and can also, I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in this kind of transition that happens in the middle of the first millennium, where you know the historians kind of tell us that there's a big migration of people into Britain. Although actually when you start examining it, I think that's probably been, that's that's an over-interpretation of what the historians actually said. And I think that, you know, it's a really interesting time at the moment to be examining the influence of groups of people who we might broadly refer to as Anglo-Saxons, but people coming in from, you know, what is now, what is now Belgium, the Netherlands, Denmark, further north in Scandinavia. What's the influence of those people on on British culture, and especially on emerging ideas of uh, of England, um, and the the way that kind of kingdoms are coalescing in that first millennium and coming together to form what will later be known as England. I'd really like to come back to this idea of transition, but I've got a few other questions to ask you first, if you don't mind. Often we hear in the news how new scientific discoveries are changing our perception and understanding of history. So how do the different academic disciplines interact with each other in order to produce a coherent narrative of the past? Well, that's really interesting at the moment. Uh, and, I, and I think that was something that I wanted to get into in the book. So, so the books are, you know, they're not just about, 
you know, what we know at this point in time, bringing together archaeology and history, they're also about this, you know, revolutionary new force in in archaeology, which is which is ancient DNA, which is completely transformative. I mean, I think it's the biggest revolution that archaeology has experienced since the advent of radiometric dating. So, you know, radiocarbon dating coming in in the 1960s and the way that that suddenly enabled archaeologists to pin absolute dates on objects, artefacts, people from the past. And I think we're seeing something as revolutionary now with ancient DNA, where there's suddenly the ability to, you know, to answer questions that were actually unanswerable before. One of the big ones, I suppose, is when you when you do suspect or you want to test that, that whether there's been a, a big influx of people into a certain region, actually, up until now, it's been pretty impossible to do that. We could look at changes in material culture. So we could see, you know, particular pottery perhaps starting to be used or, you know, the arrival of going back into prehistory, the arrival of metalwork in Britain, that kind of thing. But, you know, pots are not people. So, uh, you know, is this a, you know, a few people coming in and bringing an idea with them? And and actually, you could argue yourself blue in the face about that, but you didn't have the evidence there to be to be able to answer that question, even to start interrogating it. Ancient DNA allows us to do that because we can look at the genomes of people. So focusing on the early Bronze Age just for a moment, if you look at the genomes of people in the Bronze Age and compare those genomes with people who are here in Britain in the preceding Neolithic, um, the, the very tail end of the Stone Age, do those Bronze Age people look like the descendants of the farmers or are they significantly genetically different? And the answer is yes, they are significantly genetically different. There's a, a what looks like a 90% population replacement going on in the mid-third millennium BCE. Um, so we really can tackle these questions. It's quite extraordinary. We need to look at the details of that. We, d- we know that population replacement has happened. We don't know how it happened. So again, we mustn't jump to conclusions. We don't know if this is a dramatic invasion or just something gradual that happens over a few centuries with people on the move. But equally, we can we can do the same thing with the with the first millennium. So we're just starting to to get into that now with with ancient DNA, and you know really kind of test those ideas and test whether you know the venerable bee telling us that there are all these hordes of um, Germanic tribes coming over seems to actually stack up, um, and whether this is a story that we suspect may be more relevant to you know just the southeast of England, and perhaps it's not as relevant as uh, when you get further north or or indeed further west. So it is, I mean, it's really, really exciting. What's interesting as well, though, is that you've got these kind of two different cultures. So there's there's the science of genetics and there's archaeology and it's it's coming together, but there's a bit of wrangling going on at the moment. You know, how, how far can we trust that genetic data? Are the geneticists asking the right questions? Are they working closely with the archaeologists? And I think that there have been pitfalls along the way and there have, there have been tensions, definitely. And that's, you know, that's fascinating, this kind of culture clash between these different branches of science. But we've got people like Tom Booth, who's working in Pontus Skoglin's lab in the Crick Institute in London, who is both an archaeologist and a geneticist. So I think we're now starting to see the coming together um, of these disciplines. And I think you would be hard pushed to find an archaeology course um, anywhere in Britain, an archaeology degree course, where you didn't learn about ancient DNA. Can you tell us a little bit more about how the science of ancient DNA works. I can tell you a little bit. I'm not a geneticist. I think if I was starting out again now, 
and and just thinking about my discipline and thinking about biological anthropology, I, w- I would have to be a geneticist because it's where it's at and it's really exciting. And and I think, you know, what, what my geneticist friends are doing is utterly incredible. I think about what happened in Britain when the first metal workers arrived in the early Bronze Age and how that must have seemed that these people had this incredible technology that nobody would ever seen before. They had the ability to extract metal from stone. I mean, it, we're so used to it now, we kind of take it for granted. But it must have been extraordinary when those people first came along and they must have been considered to be shamans. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a magical thing to be able to do. I feel the same way about my geneticist colleagues who can do this magical thing of unlocking secrets from, from ancient bones. I can look at the, the, the structure of bones. I can, I can x-ray them. I can, I can get a lot of information from old bones. But what they do is it just takes it to another level. I mean, they're extracting very tiny samples of uh, uh, of bone. And, you know, ancient DNA used to require big samples. It was quite destructive. We're now, le- now looking at much smaller samples. So we're not as worried about uh, damaging the archaeological remains. We can take very tiny samples of the petrous temporal bone, which is underneath the skull. It's extremely dense. It needs to be because it houses the ear apparatus. And because it's dense, that's where we find the best preserved DNA. We're actually finding that we've got great DNA in the ear ossicles as well. So the tiny little bones inside the ear, which form the link between your eardrum and your cochlea. So they're part of the mechanism of hearing. Equally, they're made of very dense bone. They're very tiny, but they're made of very dense bone. And um, they're quite useful because you often get archaeological skulls where you've got some mud still in the external auditory meatus, the ear hole, and you can just free up that mud using a dental tool, give it a little shake, and out come the ossicles, and it's a ready-made sample for, for ancient DNA. So the next stage of that is to extract the DNA and to amplify it. So the, the DNA that's going to be there is going to be there in quite small quantities. You want to amplify it. You want to make many, many copies of it. And people will be really familiar with at least the name of that technology because of what's happened to us over the last two years, PCR. So PCR is about getting a small sample, which in terms of ancient DNA is a small sample of, uh, of bone ground up. In terms of tracking COVID, it's a small sample from, from cells that you've swabbed at the back of your throat or up your nose. And what you're doing then is amplifying the small amount of DNA that you've got in that sample using polymerase chain reaction, which splits apart the DNA molecule, doubles it up, splits it apart again, doubles it up. And you run through a few cycles of that and suddenly you've got, you know, it's exponential. You're going to boost the amount of DNA you've got. Then you go for the sequencing. So then it's a, a question of actually reading that DNA, decoding it. And DNA, the, you know, the molecule of life, the, the, the code of life is composed of just four chemical letters. And those four chemical letters are arranged in sequences which are meaningful. The sequences are are read by the cells in your body and they are used to make proteins. And that is the beginning of how your how your body is made, how your body works. And everybody has 20,000 odd odd genes and we've all got slightly different versions of those 20,000 genes. And so if we can read those genes, I mean, the other challenge that the the geneticists working with ancient DNA have got is that that they haven't got whole chromosomes. They haven't got whole lengths of DNA. They've got little tiny fragments of DNA, sometimes just 100 base pairs long. So actually after the sequencing, what they have to do is stack that all up like a massive jigsaw to recreate a genome. But what my friends are doing at the Crick Institute is reconstructing entire human genomes. So not just, you know, uh, picking out 
genes here and there or even specific points in the genome that they want to look at. They're reading the entire sequence. So we're getting huge volumes of information from those ancient genomes. And that is ancient DNA in as much of a nutshell as I can do it. This obviously has significant positives. What are almost the challenges behind it? I think one of the big challenges is knowing where to direct that amazingly powerful technology. And that requires archaeologists and geneticists to be working very well together. So I think I think there is a kind of a sort of cultural philosophical challenge there. The Thousand Ancient Genomes Project, which is underway at the Crick. So my, my books are also about this project happening. I, you know, I, I, I really wanted to write about that because very often we're reporting on science that's already happened, that's you know, perhaps happened quite a few years ago, actually, that's already been published, discussed. And I wanted to talk about a project that was that was still in progress, that was still actually happening. You know, that that project involves, it's a massive collaboration, you know, it's run by Pontus Skoglund, but actually it's a huge collaboration between Pontus and I think it must be hundreds of, uh, of archaeologists across the UK and beyond. So, so I think that you know, it does, it does need to be collaborative, and that project is a really good example of of how we can do this science in a in a very collaborative way. I think that's that's absolutely essential. So that was a you know it's a big challenge, but it's it's really important, and it also means that because it's collaborative, the the science will be better for that. It must be really challenging for you writing as this research is also going on in the background and trying to keep up to date with it all. Yeah, it's really fun. You know, it is it is challenging because um, the story shifts as you're writing it. You know, I'll I'll find that by the time I get to the end of uh, of writing the book, that actually some of the you know there'll be there'll be extra things to add in. And actually, since publication as well, so it's it's moving quite fast. So uh, you know, I've got I've got more insights now, um, having having just spoken to the the team at the Crick, for instance, that haven't quite made it into buried, but I'll have to put them in the next book. So the next book will pick up the story and do the last thousand years uh, of history in Britain from the perspective of burial archaeology and ancient DNA. And I'm really focusing on uh, the impact of diseases, actually, on uh, on, on British history in, in that period. But what I will also do in that book is pick up those threads from ancestors and from buried and see where we're at, particularly with the, with the um, Thousand Ancient Genomes Project. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And this pipe burial is exactly what it sounds like. It is a, it's a burial with a pipe. So it's in a lead canister with a pipe which went to the surface of the soil. So on uh, you know the Day of the Dead, when you go and visit the graveside, you take a feast with you and you probably pour a little bit of wine down the pipe to Uncle Brutus or whoever it was down there. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring... The best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed ebay motors is here for the ride 
With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. The idea of transition over the course of a thousand years, going from Romans to Anglo-Saxons, I think we, we do tend to think of the past in periods. How do the transitions look from an archaeological point of view? Um, not quite as clear, I think. Uh, so what's, I suppose what's interesting about our approach to the past is that we do divide it up into chunks. And I I think that is is very useful as an approach. I mean, it's it's kind of what we do with science very generally. We we tend to sort of, you know, and and thinking about my science in particular, thinking about anatomy, that's that's how we understand the body. We kind of divide it up into bits and and look at each bit in turn and then put it all back together again. So um you have to do that reductionist thing because otherwise it's such a big sprawling question a big sort of sprawling knotty question that you're that you're looking at so so first of all i suppose there's a philosophical need to divide things up in order to understand them but what you've really got to do in history as well as anatomy is to put it all back together again and also not to let your own divisions rule how you approach the subject because those divisions are largely arbitrary. I mean, this is the this is the I suppose the importance of uh, of archaeology to history in you know, has it's important in many ways. But you know what it shows us is that there aren't these kind of sudden switches between you know one regime and another, um, between one era and another, and that that idea of ages of eras are we're imposing those on the past, and we must be careful to make sure that that doesn't then completely frame our interpretation. So when we look at the the end of the Roman period in Britain, it is a process. It's not a, you know, it's not a sudden end and then that's it. You know, Britain has been, um, the southern half of Britain has been part of the Roman Empire for nearly four centuries. You know, when it withdraws, um, when the, you know, first of all, the, the Roman army is pulled out of Britain, but then actually the Britons themselves reject the Roman Empire later on say, "Could you send us some military help, please?" And uh, and the Roman Empire says, "No, we're not. We're not going to do that now. You are out. You have brexited." But it is a it is a process, and you know it, I think that you know in a very very simplified view of it, you might imagine that during the Roman period there are lots of Romans here, and where do they come from? And then when you get to the end of the Roman period, they all go. That's obviously not what's happening. And the people that are here in Britain in the fifth century and the sixth century are largely the you know the descendants of the people who were here in Britain in the third and fourth centuries. They haven't just left, <laughs> and another group of people have come in. And and I think it's that that kind of yeah that kind of complexity and understanding how uh, you know a political regime might change 
But actually, that doesn't mean that there's a profound change of culture or language or, or indeed, new, you know, necessarily new groups of people coming in with, with that change. So we've got to kind of separate those, those things. You know, we can use the eras to divide up history to make it easier to look at, um, but we mustn't assume that as you change, turn the corner from the 4th century into the 5th century, everything suddenly changed. And and the processes that are at work in the 5th century, I mean, it is a time of change, but it's always a time of change. The, the processes that are at work in the 5th century will be able to find the roots of those in, in previous centuries. There's something evolutionary about it, I think, that, you know, in evolution, you don't suddenly see a species appearing. It's a gradual process. And, uh, and there's, you know, there's gradual change. And you might get to a point where you say, OK, this is a this is a recognisably distinct thing that we're looking at now. We're going to call this a new species. But it hasn't just arrived overnight. There's been a whole process leading up to that. In, in biology, that would have been a whole series of mutations and adaptations that lead to that new species. In, in history, it would have been, you know, a whole series of perhaps some new people arriving in a, in a particular place, but um, certain ideas spreading, other ideas falling out of favour. And we will see that reflected in, in material culture. Somebody who writes really eloquently about this and who I read a lot when I was writing this book is Susan Oosthuizen, the, the medieval archaeologist. And she really kind of encourages us to, to look at the long durée, take a longer view of history and to and to look for look for continuity as well and uh, and to look for the you know when we think we can see a change where's that change coming from where are the seeds of that change coming from and actually to recognize that there are a lot of things that change very slowly and perhaps fundamentally the relationship between humans and the landscape is perhaps the most persistent and most slowly changing aspect of it so the um the the way that people are using the landscape and particularly particularly owning the landscape farming the landscape that is going to change much more slowly returning to talk about your book and the funerary sites how do we see this transition this change well it's fascinating because we see some evidence of you know burial rites that are very definitely imports into Britain. So very definitely ideas that have started off somewhere else and then have just popped up in Britain. And you go, ah, oh, that is that is definitely an import. One of those is the is the first one in the book, which is the incredible pipe burial from from Caerleon in South Wales, you know, which was a, a really important Roman fortress. And, you know, what are the bases, the three legionary bases? So the three legionary bases are York, Chester and Caerleon. So we have a town growing up around that fortress and there's a cemetery just outside the town, which is the kind of standard Roman way of doing things. You do not have cemeteries inside towns. They wouldn't have, pre-Christian Romans wouldn't have, wouldn't have condoned the idea of a churchyard inside a settlement, for instance. That's a ridiculous thing. You have your cemeteries out of town. In the out-of-town cemetery at Killian, there was this fantastic discovery of a pipe burial. And this pipe burial is exactly what it sounds like. It is a, it's a burial with a pipe. So it's in a lead canister and it's a cremated burial. So it's a, the cremated remains are placed in a lead canister with a pipe which went to the surface of the soil. And this is part of that Roman feasting tradition. So on uh, you know the Day of the Dead, when you go and visit the graveside, you take a feast with you and you probably pour a little bit of wine down the pipe to Uncle Brutus or whoever it was down there um, so that he could um, or she could share in the share in the feast. 
Uh, so you've got things like that where Mortimer Wheeler actually looked at that particular burial from from Killian and um, he recognised that this was a a ritual, a, a kind of way of doing death, I suppose, which existed elsewhere in Europe. And, and there are examples in Italy. And this is, you know, this is a direct import into Britain. So presumably somebody who was either you know, an immigrant from elsewhere in the Roman Empire or, you know, maybe maybe first generation Britain coming in in the Roman period. But certainly, you know, their own cultural background was this was this idea about this the pipe burial and, uh, and and those cremated remains. So so you get those very obvious imports, but then you you also get burial rites changing once they arrive in Britain. So you get ideas spreading to Britain, but then taking on a bit of a life of their own. So there being a kind of British flavour to them. And then you get some burial rites, which seem to be very much homegrown. uh, And the idea seems to be more firmly rooted in Britain than elsewhere. And in that vein, we've got the really weird decapitated burials that we find in the later Roman period in Britain, where lots of people have looked at these. Several people have done whole PhDs trying to work out what's going on with these decapitated burials. Some of them undoubtedly are executed victims are you know are actual beheadings and then the head is placed in the grave sometimes back where it should be sometimes somewhere else like down by the feet but we think that some of the other ones are actually more ritualized so uh, rather than representing victims of execution or you know violence during conflict that these are actually fairly carefully detached heads which have then been placed elsewhere in the grave and there's a possibility that this might be a kind of continuation of some Iron Age customs, which involved fragmentation of bodies, which sounds very weird to us today. It's, a, it's, another, it's another point where we need to separate ourselves from our, our own sort of first instincts, which is to go, oh, that's odd, to take a head off somebody and put it somewhere else in the grave. But they would consider our burial rites to be very odd, probably. So you, you have to consider that actually, even though it looks odd to us today, it might have been perfectly normal for some people at some times to be doing this sort of thing. And those decapitated burials are more frequent in Britain than anywhere else. So I don't think that's an example of a, of a tradition coming in from elsewhere. I think that's a tradition which has evolved in Britain. Do we see a diversity in funerary practices at all across Britain? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and this is interesting too. And I suppose this is another bit of a warning to us not to, not to be very simple in our approach to the past and, you know, and to say, you know, when the Romans arrive in Britain, they do things a different way. Well, it, it depends where you are in Britain. And although we see, you know, different practices coming in with Britain becoming part of the Roman Empire, that that's going to change through time as well. So, yes, we've got two aspects of that, I suppose, which is that divers- at any single time, there's a diversity across Britain um, in terms of what people are doing. Um, and some some people may be following traditions which have gone on for for hundreds of years, if not thousands, actually. Then there may be new ideas coming in as uh, as Britain has you know changing links, I suppose, to different areas of the continent, and and then it changes through time. So it's not as though Roman burial practices are stable throughout time. There are there are trends. So. You know, there are times when actually um, most people are being cremated and then there are times when most people are being buried um, as inhumation. So it is is very diverse. So when we're doing the bigger picture stuff, it's, it's always really important to bear that in mind, to bear that in mind that when you actually home in and you look at what's happening 
I suppose, in a more fine-grained way, that we find a lot of a lot of diversity. And it's yeah, it's really it's really important to try and to try and map that and try to understand what's happening. And I think the burial archaeology itself is fascinating because it it just shows it shows connections and it shows how Britain, you know, has never been isolated as an you know an island off northwest Europe. It's always been in contact with its nearest neighbours and with and with more far flung places as well. And and what we're seeing through that culture is is all those connections, which which I think is you know really really fascinating and wonderful. So you know in in the book, if I just pick up a few examples, we've obviously got you know Viking burial practices which link to directly to to Scandinavian cultures. We've got Roman burial practices which which link right you know right back to Italy with the with the pipe burial, for instance, and then we've got practices in in West Wales, which show similarities with what's happening in Ireland as well, with the, the the evolution of these kind of early early Christian cemeteries, which seem to precede churchyards. It seems that the churches are uh, are kind of later associated with the with the cemeteries. The cemeteries are kind of on their own to begin with. But yes, you're in each of those places. You're you're seeing those connections, and it reminds us that the the sea was never a barrier to the spread of ideas in and out of Britain. That's the other thing to remember is it's not just, you know, it's not just as though Britain's always in receipt of ideas. Ideas are flowing out of Britain too, ideas and people. How do we see migration in terms of people and ideas? How do we see that in the archaeology? Well, we can, we can approach it in different ways. So we can, we can certainly see ideas spreading and we see that very clearly during these kind of post-Roman centuries say in the fifth sixth seventh eighth centuries we we do see ideas uh, incorporated in material culture which which represent a, a connection with communities across the north sea so there's that kind of germanic connection which has always been linked to this idea of anglo-saxon invasions or a mass anglo-saxon migration and i think that it's important to to realize that there's a there's a cultural change happening and there's a really important cultural connection across the North Sea. But what we don't know is whether that is linked to a massive influx of people, and we suspect it probably isn't, or whether that's just a, a reorientation of, uh, of the economy and the politics of Britain uh, away from Rome and towards centres of power in the north of, north of Europe. I think that's probably more of what's going on. But it is fascinating. I mean, there's, there, there's been wonderful work done on, on mapping, changing styles, for instance, of, uh, of brooches. And we have these extraordinarily beautiful brooches in Anglo-Saxon Britain. And we can see how those brooches change in style over time. Cruciform brooches, so kind of cross-shaped brooches, which you know, we can see how they're related to earlier forms in the Roman period going back into the Iron Age, actually. They're, they're kind of built on the fibula, but they have these kind of crossbars and they get more and more elaborate over time. And Toby Martin has done this incredible uh, mapping of uh, of those changing styles over time, which were, you know absolutely requires very accurate dating on all of those all of those brooches. And so we yeah, we can see those styles changing. We can do that kind of very, very careful analysis of of changing material culture. And then what we can do is look at is, is look at ancient DNA and see how that relates. 
And we're not doing anything as kind of crude as going, oh, well, you know, if this if we've got a brooch that has a connection with with um, other bro- other Frisian brooches from, you know, from what's now the Netherlands, does this person look as though they came from the Netherlands? We're just we're trying to kind of look at it in a, in a much more kind of nuanced way, I suppose, and look at the influence of connections across the North Sea, some people coming over and these ideas spreading. And also being open to the idea that those those ideas are going to start arriving here before the end of the Roman period. So there's some, or, 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 you know, right at the very end of the Roman period. So there's some really interesting burials at Dorchester-on-Thames where you've got men buried with quite military-style belts of office, so kind of Roman-looking belts of office, and women buried with brooches which which link to um, cultures across the North Sea, so kind of Frisian-style style brooches. So there's something really interesting going on in that kind of later 4th century into the 5th century. I'm not sure we know exactly what it is yet, and we'll need a lot more in terms of, I think, very detailed analysis of uh, of both the material culture um, and then looking at the people themselves in terms of their genetics. It's really tricky. I was talking to the team from the Crick about this recently, and in terms of trying to detect, um, you know, how many people are crossing the North Sea into Britain during those centuries, it's really difficult because the people over the other side of the North Sea are going to look very genetically similar <laughs> to the people in Britain because they've always been connected across the sea. You know, it's not as though this is a new idea in the fifth century that you sail across the North Sea to Britain. So there will have always been those connections there. So that's going to be a, a really kind of detailed piece of work um, to see if we can detect any kind of genetic signals of migration or not during that period. What's the next thing to look out for in this research, in this field? I think the next thing is to not only be focusing on the on the kind of big, broad brush picture, but to be looking at the at the finer detail and to be to be looking at the the kind of diversity of people and culture uh, across Britain and through time. So to you know to be really kind of getting that kind of fine grained approach to it. And and I think even when we're looking at the bigger picture and, and more broad brush at the moment, we're, we're seeing that processes will be different in different places. So I think it's really important not to assume that, you know, because in Britain we now know that the, that the early Bronze Age was mediated, the arrival of that, you know, the change in culture in the early Bronze Age seems to be mediated by a, a big change in population, not to assume that that's always going to be the answer. So that, you know, not to fall back into that old culture history paradigm, we would say in archaeology, uh, of just assuming that when you've got a material culture change, that that's a new group of people coming in. Because in those in those centuries, when we look at the spread of the beaker culture uh, and the bell beaker culture across Europe, in Britain, yes, there does seem to be a big influx of people. In Iberia, there isn't. So there's a change in culture without a big change in in the population, and I and I think that you know we're talking about Britain and Iberia. I suspect that we'll find that um, it will be a different story for you know southeast Britain compared with northwest Britain when we start to get down to that more kind of detailed picture of Britain. We'll see different things happening in different places. Essentially, by looking at such a local picture. Does that pose problems in trying to convey these ideas and convey this new research and history to the public where it's almost so bitty and so there's so much to look at? 
Yeah, it's um, it's it's really layered. Um, and say, so, I mean, I try to do that in the books, in that I will kind of, I will kind of widen my scope and and look at the bigger picture questions, but then try to bring it back down to a, a more local level as well, and think about what's happening with communities. With a, a cemetery is a is a community through time, and, and I think that's quite a quite an interesting unit to look at but also actually individuals. And I think that that ultimately is how we connect with each other as humans. You know, we we can look at what's happening with whole populations and try to understand that and try to understand what's happening economically and politically across Europe in the, in the first millennium uh, on a really big scale, kind of, you know, geopolitics, we would call it today. And, and that's really interesting and, and essential. But, uh, but I then think we get something really fascinating and 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 worthwhile by zooming right back in on these individual case studies um and thinking about you know a single life at a single point in the past and and those connections and, and you know certainly when i'm when i'm working on human remains there is that, that really kind of intimate connection between me and and one person and and i'm trying to uncover their story i'm trying to i'm trying to link into to a biography and I suppose it's the same in history more generally, isn't it? That you you have all of that happening. So you've got the sort of the individual stitches in the tapestry, which are individual biographies, and then you can zoom out to the to the bigger picture. But one isn't more worthwhile than the other. I think you need you need them both, and you need to you need to look at the big picture, but you also need to home in on the details as well. With that in mind, as a final question, I just want to ask you: What do you want listeners to take away from our chat today? Ah, some of the excitement of the new science that's, you know, transforming archaeology, I think, because it is it is really exciting. And, um, you know, every time I every time I go to the quick or, you know, pick up the phone or do a Zoom with my my colleagues there, there's there's new stuff to find out about. And it's 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 you know, it is incredibly exciting. So so I want to um, I want to convey a bit of that. And hopefully I'm capturing some of that um, in the book as well. And also showing how science is allowing us to revisit what we thought we knew about history. And of course, history is always being rewritten. You know, this idea that we shouldn't be revising history or we shouldn't, you know, uh, revisionist history shouldn't be a thing. Uh, every generation does this. You know, we have to reinterpret history because we have new information coming in and we understand it in a different way. And we uh, and we also understand perhaps our own approach to it in a different way. It, although some of the some of the discoveries that I talk about in the in the book were found, you know, maybe a hundred years ago or even more. Their stories are still happening. Their stories are still being uncovered, and they're still changing. And I think we're in many ways getting closer to the truth. The truth is a is a very elusive thing, but I think we are getting closer to the truth um, because we've got all these different techniques that are that are coming along now, and because we have such a you know, a range of different scientific techniques in our in our armory. And there will be, you know, what's amazing about it is that there will be new scientific techniques in the future that I, I think, again, we can't even dream of at the moment. That was Professor Alice Roberts. Her book, Buried, An Alternative History of the First Millennium in Britain, is out now published by Simon & Schuster. I spoke to Alice about her previous book, which explores Britain's prehistory ancestors. If you'd like to hear that conversation, just search for Alice Roberts in your podcast feeds to bring that up. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. Jack Bateman.